0: Welcome to the FBH Podcast. For more information about our church, feel free to visit www.fbhamford.org. And so as we're preaching through this Mark series, we're going to be in Mark 15, by the way, and so if you want to open your Bibles, you can flip to Mark 15, open it on your phone, whatever. But as we're preaching through this, it's kind of a weird one because today is Palm Sunday. We celebrate Palm Sunday, right? But Palm Sunday is Jesus' triumphal entry into, like, like into Jerusalem, And normally what would happen is we'd have like a whole bunch of kids, we'd sing Hosanna and they'd have palm fronds and hit each other with palm fronds and then like set the palm fronds down and then the volunteers would have to try to organize all the kids back there afterwards, right? But we're not doing that today because as we're preaching through Mark, we have been in the last week of Jesus' life for the last two months. Palm Sunday for us as we've been teaching through it was like two months ago. And so today it's going to feel kind of heavy, because of the fact that we are, te- we are going to be teaching through the death of Jesus. And I don't know if we consider the death of Jesus, that truth, enough. And I think the reason that we don't consider it enough is because even though America is kind of now on its way to becoming a, a post-Christian nation and church attendance and personal relationships with Jesus are rapidly falling, there is still an assumption in areas like hours that people should already know and understand the magnitude of, of this event. And so because of that, the reason we go to church can simply, for people, can simply just be to be moral. Like, I'm going to be more moral. Actually, I think if you would ask the majority of non-Christians just randomly walking down the street, why do people go to church? I think oftentimes the answer would be, oh, so they can be, learn to be a good person. And we boil down Christianity, we boil down our belief in Scripture, in Jesus, in God, in the Holy Spirit. We boil all of that down into this idea of morality. And actually, if you look at Scripture, Jesus' Jesus's goal wasn't morality for the sake of morality. I mean, yeah, he teaches how to be a good person. Scripture gives us the Ten Commandments, right? Honor mom and dad, don't steal, don't kill somebody. Like, you should be good, you're a moral person. But that wasn't Jesus' intention for coming here. Jesus' goal was to make a pathway for the kingdom of heaven, which isn't reserved for when we die, by the way. This pathway is open, and it starts as soon as we enter into a saving relationship with him. So hear me on this. And this is what I want you to get out of this message today. So if you're a note taker, get ready to take a note. Jesus came and died for our eternity, not our morality. Jesus came and died for our eternity, not our morality. And this scene right now that we're going to get to, it's going to start in verse 16. It is going to show us God's wrath. It's going to show us God's forgiveness. It's going to show us God's grace. All of these things have to be present in order for us to kind of have a pathway that leads us back to God. All three of these. And this is how the entire thing goes down, starting in verse 16. It says, The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace." that is the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, and then they twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews. And again and again, they struck him on the head with a staff, and they spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And then they had mocked him, and when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. All right, let's understand where we're at. If you haven't been with us the last couple of weeks, you need to know that two weeks ago was kind of Jesus' trial before the Sanhedrin. A whole bunch of Pharisees, a whole bunch of religious leaders who wanted nothing more than to eradicate Jesus off the face of the earth. So they got together. They conspired against them. They got Judas involved. And Judas betrays him they bring Jesus in, and they're like, yep, he's guilty of blasphemy. We're going to take him now to a guy by the name of Pilate. Pilate's going to be a Roman authority. And so they, they bring Jesus to Pilate, and that was last weekend. And, and, and we talked about the, pi, the, the trial before Pilate and the fact that they present all of this evidence about Jesus, and none of the evidence really sticks, and none of it is actually what it should be, and Pilate wants nothing to do with it. And so Pilate was like, hey, look, we, we have the opportunity to release one prisoner. You guys can either release Jesus or you can release this guy by the name of Barabbas. Barabbas being an insurrectionist, a guy who was, was doing his best to rise up against Rome with other people. And so like, give us Barabbas. Give us Barabbas. And so, Jesus, so then Pilate's like, well, what do you want me to do with Jesus? Then? They're like, crucify him, crucify him. Mom mentality takes over. We ended last week by saying that Pilate was going to have him beaten and crucified. And so that's what is happening right now. Jesus is getting beaten and he's on his way to be crucified. So Jesus gets scourged in front of everybody, whipped in front of everybody. If you've been in charter church for a long time, you would recognize a pastor has probably talked about the whip that they used. It was called a cat of nine tails. And what would happen is they would have this whip, and it was made of, made of leather. At the end of the leather, the whip wasn't enough. At the end of the leather, they would tie rocks and bone and, and anything sharp that they could find, and they would whip the prisoner. And then, as they would whip him, that rock and that bone, those sharp objects would dig in, and then they would pull. So it wasn't just whipping that would happen. It would be the tearing of the skin that would happen. Sometimes it would wrap all the way around the body, pull off chunks of flesh from that person. So they scourged Jesus in front of everybody. They beat him in front of everybody so badly that most people couldn't even recognize him is what some accounts say. So this is all going on. And then after that happens, then they bring him back. And there's just a whole bunch of soldiers who are, who are going to continue to kind of crucify Jesus and mock Jesus. So Jesus, he's scourged in front of everyone in front of Herod's palace and was taken into the courtyards afterwards. That's that praetorium, that word right there. Taken into the courtyard afterwards. And so these guys who beat him and mock him, these are Pilate's men, the guy who wanted nothing to do with anything. These are Pilate's men. And they were actually brought in from Caesarea to Jerusalem to help handle this entire situation. So these guys aren't local They may have heard of Jesus, but they probably have no context for what is actually going on. They're acting on orders here. They hear that there's this guy who's saying he's the king of the Jews. Okay, I know how that we can mock him best. Let's pretend like he's a king. Let's take off one of our capes, probably burgundy, but purple enough for royalty. Let's throw that on him and make make people think that he is actually pretending to be the king of the Jews. Oh, you got a cape on him? You You got royal purple on him? Let's make a crown for him. And they probably found some, some real sharp, a bush with real sharp uh, thorns on it, wrapped it into a crown and pressed it onto his skull. And as we're thinking about this, we're thinking, okay, how many guys were there? How many people are present in this praetorium, in this courtyard? How many people were there? And maybe you have a little bit of context because you watch watched The Passion of the Christ or something like that. And you're like, oh, yeah, I remember this scene. It's like in a back hallway kind of. And there's like five or ten guys. They're yelling at him. They're punching him. Mark tells us there's 206 guys there. 206 men took part in this this perverted humor that they legitimately thought was a great joke. This Jewish man claimed to be a king. And so let's mock him. Let's take that purple robe, throw it across his shredded and bloody back, make a crown, push it into his scalp. And the soldiers at this point, they're just in full mockery mode. Let's dress this guy up like the king he claims to be. But as I read this and I think about the beating and the torture that he's going through, even the fact that this, this crown is pushed down into his scalp that has so many blood vessels in there, there would have been an immense amount of blood. And once everything is in place, once all these things are done, it's hail king of the Jews, mockery, followed by more violence, more violence, and more mockery before they led him out to crucify him. It continues in verse 21. It says, A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull, and then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Verse 24, and they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't even save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. Men who were crucified, they were required to carry the cross beam of the the cross. Not the entire thing like a lot of depictions would see or would show, rather. It would be the cross piece that they were going to be nailed to. And John tells us that, that Jesus started out by, by, by doing his best to, to bear it, that he put it on his back at, at first, and, and he actually couldn't do it because of the beating and the torture that he endured. This would actually speak to how badly he was beaten because this cross piece would only weigh 30 or 40 pounds. It was big, but not like an entire tree big. 30 or 40 pounds. And for a guy who was in his mid-30s when he was crucified, like Jesus was, this shouldn't have been that massive of a weight. A healthy 30-ish-year-old man, 35-year-old man, should be able to carry 30 pounds on his back. But he was beaten to death. And so because of that, he can't carry it, so this guy named Simon to carry it for him. And they walked to the place of the skull, Golgotha, And a really simple line encapsulates all of the torture that the cross would have had for Jesus. It's verse 24. It's a real simple sentence. It just says, and they crucified him. Now, Mark, remember, as he's writing, he's writing to a specific group of people. Most people that he was writing to would have understood what crucifixion meant, what the torture of crucifixion meant. So what would happen is, is they, would, they would put Jesus on the cross and they would put criminals on the cross. And sometimes they would tie their hands to each crossbeam and sometimes they would, they would nail the person to each crossbeam. And so oftentimes we think of Jesus being crucified and, and the nails go in his hands. Well, the nails actually went into his wrists is what it would have been common. So he had something to lock into there rather than the nail just tearing through the palm of his hand. So they would lock him onto that, and then there would be a, a, a tiny little slanted shelf on the bottom. They would put his feet onto it, and they would nail his feet to that. And so most people think, like, oh, crucifixion. How, how would you die from crucifixion? Is it exposure? Maybe Jesus bled to death. What is it? Well, oftentimes, crucifixion, the way that you died was you couldn't breathe anymore. People don't think about that, that, that it was literally asphyxiation. Because what would happen is when your hands like this and your feet like this and your whole body is slumped down, that you can't take a deep breath when you're in that position. And so what the, the prisoner would have to do, what he, would ha- he would have to push up on that nail that was gone through both of his feet to take a breath. Up, down. Up, down. In and out. In and out. And so what would happen is people wouldn't die because of exposure they got bl- or they bled out or anything like that. They would die because they couldn't breathe anymore. They were so exhausted that they couldn't push up on that nail that was underneath their foot as well. And so it would completely and totally die because of that. And so in this whole thing, they offer Jesus a drink to ease the pain. And he refuses at that point. They put him on a cross between two other men. Most, most people understand these men to be robbers in some way. And Jesus had a a board nailed above him with a specific charge against him so anyone who didn't know what was going on would know then this man claimed to be the king of the jews is what the board read the board was a mixture largely of mockery and his charge at the same time so i was reading through this and i was reading through the guys on either side of, of jesus as they were being as jesus was uh, was being crucified and verse 27, it doesn't say robbers, it says rebels. There's actually a growing understanding and, and a study, I guess, in the theological realm, because this is what nerdy pastors do. They're like, what is the actual word there? And more people actually believe these guys were less robbers and more insurrectionists. Where have we heard insurrectionists before in the last couple weeks? Barabbas. Which means that a lot of people actually believe that the cross that Jesus was hanging on was actually the cross that was reserved for Barabbas. That these two guys were a part of the same insurrection, the same overthrowing of Rome that Barabbas had been a part of. And all three of them were scheduled to get crucified together. But the chief priest wasn't, weren't going to allow it. Like, no, that cross is reserved for Jesus. And so Jesus not only takes the place for all of us on the cross, but he specifically took the place of Barabbas on that cross as well. And there's some gray area there. Don't don't write home to mom about that, but it's definitely something to consider. And then in verses 31 and 32, we have more mockery, specifically mockery from the Pharisees. And then Jesus dies. And when Jesus dies, this is when the story is going to shift back from Jesus' humanity to Jesus' divinity. And this is going to be an important shift. It starts in verse 33. At noon... Darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon, three hours of darkness. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, leme Sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near Jesus heard this, they said, Listen, he's calling Elijah. They were mistaken with the "loi, loi." Verse 36 Someone ran All three of the synoptic gospels, that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, record this event. Specifically the darkness that's falling over the land. They all record it. And some people have tried to kind of write this event off as an eclipse of some sort or a sandstorm or something like that would happen for three hours that would blot out the sun and just have darkness. There's a couple explanations of what it what it could be in the natural realm, but Mark chalks it up to God's judgment. And this is God's judgment, literally his wrath being poured out onto Jesus at this moment. Which is why at this same moment when darkness falls, that's why when Jesus, he cries out in verse 34. And you heard me say it in my terrible Hebrew. But he cries out to God. And honestly, the meaning of this cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We've tried to explain this away so often. The reality of this is, is we don't know the depths of what this statement means. We'll never know the depths of what this statement means on this side of eternity because it's beyond our comprehension. The cry is so deep that we can't get to the bottom of this. And the least inadequate explanation is that Jesus finds himself right now in a complete and total sense of desolation. He's been cut off from the Father. He's enduring pain, torture. His friends have all abandoned him. And he is alone on the cross, bearing the wrath of his Father for all of eternity. This is when the sin of all mankind is being placed onto Jesus in such a severe way that he felt the horror of that sin so deeply that for a time his closeness, his perfect communion with the Father had been obscured. And that's heavy. But this moment is why Jesus came to earth. This moment right here in the story, God's wrath being poured out, is the entire reason that we celebrate Christmas. This is why he came. This is when the sin of all mankind is being placed on him. This is why he came to earth. This is why he died. This is why he was so terrified in the Garden of Gethsemane. Not because he was going to die. He knew what awaited him after death. It was because he was going to be completely and totally cut off from the Father. Paul tells us this in 2 Corinthians. The depth of how, bad, of how rough this was. That God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. That's what's happening right now. Jesus, spotless lamb, perfect sacrifice, hanging on a tree, cursed for the sake of the cursed, sin for the sake of the sinner, damnation for the sake of the damned. That's the weight of all of this. And after he bears all of it, he refuses a drink, and with a loud cry, he breathes his last breath after six hours of torture. And then we get to something both incredibly interesting and something incredibly important. This is the shift from humanity to divinity right now. It's at this moment that God had redeemed all of his people and provided a pathway back to mankind, or a pathway back to eternity. And it isn't because of the loud cries, it's not because of the the agony, it was that, that after Jesus died, we read that the curtain in the temple was torn in two. And we don't understand this because we're not Jewish. We don't understand the immensity of this. Sometimes it's called a curtain, sometimes it's called a veil, it's called a bunch of different things. But during Old Testament times, before Jesus died on the cross, a chosen priest, one priest, would make go and make a make a sacrifice on behalf of all of the people to God. And part of this, part of this worship included the priest going through the door of the temple. Entering into the out of courts, he passes this thing called the brazen altar and into the holy place. And so he's in the holy place, and eventually from the holy place, there is a massive curtain that separates the holy place from the holy of holies. In the holy of holies is where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. The Ark of the Covenant, think back all the way back to Exodus, right? And the Israelites are carrying around the Ark of the Covenant. This is when the presence of God would have resided. And the priest would go into that place and be in the presence of God. And between the holy place and the holy of holies is this massive curtain. I don't know how much truth there is to it. I should probably do a deeper study. But, man, popular culture would say that what would happen with the priest is they would go in once a year. right? And when the priest would go into the holy of holies, there was no sin allowed there because that's where God resided. And so can you imagine like going in and thinking, okay, if, if I sin in this place, they were dead. Like they would just drop dead right where they were, right? So can you imagine how nervous, like impure thought, right? I messed up the sacrifice. I did something wrong. Dead. So what people would do was they would tie a rope to the ankle of the priest who was going in and be like, all right, you good? Yeah, you good. Don't think any impure thoughts, right? Walk in. Do the sacrifice, think an impure thought, he's dead. All right, guys, let's pull him out. So who's doing this next year, right? Like that would be incredibly concerning. But that's like the presence of God is residing in this place. And this massive curtain is separating. Let me, let me tell you how massive this curtain is. Okay? The curtain was 60 feet tall. Tall. This building, for context, that roof is about 30 feet tall from where you're sitting. 60 feet would have been big enough for for two living Christmas trees, if you uh, are familiar with the living Christmas tree here. 60 feet tall, and not just 60 feet tall, 30 feet wide. And so this stage is about 50 feet wide, 30 feet wide. Here's the thing, that's not the impressive part. Everybody put your hand out in front of your face right now. Put your hand out like this, everybody, everybody. Some of you aren't doing it. I can see your hands, okay? your hand out in front of your face. Okay, the curtain was said to be as wide as a person's hand. That thick, you can put your hands down, unless you have a question, I'll answer it later. That thick, that's how thick the curtain would have been. Some people say two and a half inches, some say three, some say four. All the, all the information we have was about as thick as a man's hand. And that curtain gets ripped from top to bottom. 60 feet worth of that width from top to bottom. You know that we have uh, some ladies who do quilting here on a regular basis, weekly basis. Quilters, if you're in the room, I expect that curtain on my desk next week, okay?
1: But that's where the Holy of
0: Holies was. And this curtain was symbolic of a barrier between God and his people, Everything in the temple, everything, symbolized or pointed to Jesus in some way. Even when the priests, like what they wore, did, illustrated, pointed to all of those things pointed to Jesus in some way. And so when that temple was torn from top to bottom, the veil symbolizing that, that separation between us and God due to our sin, and now the death of Jesus, Jesus has opened for the whole world a new way of life. And this is significant because the curtain didn't tear by human hands. It was torn by the hand of God from top to bottom. The tearing of the curtain indicates that through Jesus' death on the cross, all people now had access to God. Not a priest once a year. Jesus is the once and for all sacrifice for our sins. So Hebrews 10 tells us. There's this is tearing of the curtain. It reveals the grace of God. And so while the death of Jesus shows us God's wrath, the pouring out, the darkness of God's wrath, the tearing of the curtain points us to God's grace, that both of those things are present. Scripture tells us that the wages of sin is death, and that as darkness falls, the death of Jesus... God's wrath being poured out for all mankind. God was judging our sin as guilty. And he was placing our sin on Jesus and placing our guilt and placing our unrighteousness and placing our shame on him. That judgment that we should have received was being placed on Jesus at this moment. God even speaks about this all throughout the Old Testament. Everything that is going down Right now, in that moment, is prophesied about. Even in uh, Amos chapter 8, it's like, in that day, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth while it's still day. Let me just point out something significant here, specifically when it comes to God's wrath, when it comes to, to darkness. Even though, like in Scripture, darkness is used to indicate death. It's used a lot of times to indicate judgment. Even in normal literature, not just Scripture, it's used that way. Darkness does not mean the absence of God, though. It may look like at this point that the enemy is winning. It may feel like all hope is gone. Even in your own life, like you may not see much light in your own life. Maybe you feel defeated, full of doubts, confused about what God is doing. But even in the midst of the darkest days of our lives, God continues to to be at work. God is at work on your behalf to bring hope, to bring life, to bring joy and enthusiasm back into your life. But oftentimes what happens is you need to wait through the darkness and say, as the psalmist said in Psalm 23, that even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because God is with me. The death of Jesus reveals our sin and the judgment of God, but it also reveals that God is at work. And even though there's darkness, there's a resurrection coming. The cross shows us the seriousness of our sin, but it also shows us the immeasurable love of God. First Peter 3.18 says Christ suffered for our sins once and for all time. He never sinned, but he died for sinners to bring you safely home to God. He suffered physical death, but has been raised to life in spirit, is what Scripture tells us. So for us who are followers of Jesus, we just sometimes need to pause and say, like, Jesus, I don't fully understand, I don't fully comprehend what you went through for me, but I, but I thank you. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, then I want you to know that all of this, Jesus' death, all of it, happened for you. Jesus died on that cross to bring you safely home to God. And this should force us to pause. It should force us to pause like, like the centurion at the end of this story. As Jesus cried his last breath and as he as he died, should force us to wrestle with who this guy Jesus actually is. And the centurion's conclusion, my conclusion, and hopefully your conclusion, is that this man is the Son of God. And so this first Sunday of the month, like we normally do, we celebrate communion. So I'm about to invite the band out. If you didn't get communion elements, raise your hand nice and high. We'll have some ushers come by, and they'll take care of you. But at FBH, we believe in what's called an open table. And I say this every time, but I want, you, I want you to understand what an open table actually is. An open table its a theological term that simply means you don't have to be a member of FBH to receive communion with us. But we do ask that you've placed your faith in Christ. And not just that you understand what happened to Jesus, not that just like historically speaking, you understand what happened to Jesus because I think there's a lot of people who historically believe that Jesus was a man who came, who died on a cross for us, or maybe just died on a cross, died, and then there was never a resurrection. That would be the historical understanding of Jesus for people who don't have faith. But if you want to partake in communion with us, I would ask that you not just believe in the historical Jesus, you believe in the divine one. The divine Jesus who came at Christmas time, who lived a life, who taught, who healed, who pointed people back to his father, and who most importantly went and died on a cross and endured the wrath of his father for us. Do you believe in that divine Jesus? And that if you believe that today, we would love for you to receive communion with us. But if you've never come to a place of understanding of that, or belief, rather, then today I would love for you to be able to to make a profession of faith with us. To say, Father, I believe in your son. and I believe what he did on the cross for me. The fact that Jesus became sin, who knew no sin for each and every one of us, is the reality that every single one of us should consider every single day. So today, we're gonna sing a song. And during the first part of this song, I just want you to spend some time thanking God for what he has done for us, what he has done for you. Sit in the heaviness of this moment. Sit in the heaviness of the cross. Because it's heavy. Good Friday is heavy. But it's the reality of what the Son did on our behalf. And so just sit and thank God. If you need to get right with God, get right with God. And then we're going to take communion together. And then we're going to finish up with some singing but before we do that for those of you who have not committed your life to Christ I want to give you a second to do so and those of you who are far from him let's reconcile our sins with him as we pray so why don't you pray with me heavenly father I think a hard hard sentence to say is thank you for the cross God, that's heavy. And that my sins are there on your son. And that I don't come to that understanding regularly enough. So, God, thank you for the reality of the cross. And Father, if there's those here who have maybe not yet said yes to you with heads still bowed and eyes still closed, if that's you this morning, and you want to make a profession of faith or you just want to get right with God, you can just pray in the quietness of your heart with me. You can simply say, Father, A, I admit that I'm a sinner in need of a savior, that I regularly fall short and that my sins are what landed Jesus up on the cross. I admit that. But B, I believe, God, that you loved us enough, you love us enough Send your son so we can make it back to you. I believe that, Father, and see that I would choose to follow you every single day of my life, which means considering the reality of what you endured on our behalf. We love you, Father. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.